If you brought your Bible with you today, let's go to the little book of 1 John chapter 2 in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17. And the subject study this morning is my view of the world. As we are building our worldview and we are taking into thought everything that goes into that structure in how we view the world... We would be negligent if we didn't stop back for a moment and say, how do we view the world, the world in which we live? And so First uh, John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we come to your feet. We desire your counsel. We listen to your voice through your word. We acknowledge and affirm that this book is inspired by you and that you are speaking throughout the ages through these holy men of old who wrote these words down. Father, I pray that today you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, and a heart to obey what you have told us about this world in which we live. Father, may our affections for the things of this world not cloud our vision on this matter. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. How should we view the world in which we live? Uh, one of the principles of developing your worldview is to ask questions. We need to ask critical questions about certain subjects. And so I would ask questions like this. Is it good or is it bad? When I think about the world, just generally speaking, do I think, is it good or is it bad? Is it getting better or is it getting worse? Now, I don't know about you, but all my life I, I heard that it used to be better, right? I've heard about the good old days all my life. I wasn't here for those, but I heard that the world used to be better. I, I don't know. But the question we have to ask is, in my lifetime, in my observation, is the world what I would call getting better or is it getting worse? Is it, is it dangerous or is it safe? And on that question, we have to ask just not physically, not just is it physically dangerous and safe, but is it intellectually dangerous or safe? Is it philosophically dangerous or safe? Is it morally dangerous? When I think about my children growing up in this world, are there, are there risks, are there dangers that I'm concerned about uh, for their overall character? Is it, is it a hostile environment in which we live or is it a friendly environment? Is it progressing toward that, that long-desired utopian society? Or is it progressing toward a more dystopian society? You know, all throughout history, man has been enamored with the idea of a utopia. And he has tried to create it in different ways, this perfect environment. But the fact is, oftentimes the world is more of a dystopia. It is more uh, that is not a perfect environment, but it is this upside-down type of environment. Does the world lift you up or does it seem to drag you down? I mean, just when you're out in the world, going through life, hearing the news, all the interactions, is it invigorating and you just come home saying, man, I feel so lifted high by the world in which I live? Or do you come home and you're like, man, I am tired and I feel like just everything kind of drags me down. Does it exert a positive influence on my life or does it exert a negative influence? More, more specifically, I mean, that's very anecdotal. It's person by person. But more specifically, I would ask, what is the nature of the world? 
what is the zeitgeist or the, the spirit of the age? When I, when, I, when I take the test of the winds of the culture, what, which way are they blowing? Uh, what, what kind of pressure does the world put on you? And, and do you feel that the world affirms your worldview or do you feel like it opposes it? Your personal worldview, your core beliefs, do you feel like if you were on a public forum and you were to just state everything that you believed, do you feel like the whole world would gather around you and say, that's right, preach it, brother? Or do you think that you would have some negative comments that were pushing back and challenging your worldview? The fact is that we as Christians must do the hard work, the unpleasant work, the work that we like to neglect of assessing our world and assigning to it the role that it plays in our overall worldview. You see, it's too easy for us just to kind of go through life and let life hit us as it may and try to keep our head down and do our own thing. But the fact is, the responsibility is on you and I to step back for a moment and say, you know what, I need to, I need to think about the environment in which I live. I don't know about you, but I watch some of these survival shows sometimes. Uh, you know, they drop them off in the middle of the woods, and they, they've got to survive. You know what? One of the first things that they do is they assess their environment. What are my resources? What are my dangers? In fact, most of those people have an idea of what region of the world they're going to, if not the country. And they get to research a little in advance to figure out what are the deadly serpents or snakes that are in this area. What are the predators that are here? What are the foods that I can eat and what are the ones that I cannot eat? I mean, it's just a basic to living in an environment. But yet we seem to neglect that. As Christians, I believe we need to stop and step back and assess this world. And say, I need, to, I need to take this in for a moment. I need to look at the big picture. And then I need to assign to it the role I think it's going to play in my overall worldview. After all, this is the place where we live our entire lives. And it is the context of everything that happens. Everything that happens to you and I will happen in this world, in the context of this world. And so we need to understand how it fits into the big picture and for that, we turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I just want to give you three, three main concerns or categories about the world. The number one is the entity of the world. The entity of the world. What is its nature? If you notice, when we read those verses, the world is mentioned six times in three verses. The world's mentioned six times. And love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world. And then it goes on to say, and the world passeth away. Six times. Now, I know that John is aged when he writes this. The Apostle John writes this near the end of his life. Either John is having a senior moment and he's being very redundant and he's doing something that every literature class we've ever taken told us not to do. Don't reuse the same words. Even if you're going to say the same thing, find different words to say it a different way. Don't use that same word in the sentence repetitively. So either this is just redundant or it is emphatic. In other words, it is placing an emphasis right here so that you and I as the reader read this 
And in this machine gun fashion, verses 15, 16, 17, we hear the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. And I have to say, whoa, wait a minute. There's something about the world that God wants me to understand here. And so we have to ask, what is this entity called the world? Because it is used as a definite article, the world. It is not just a general, it is, it is talking about an entity that God refers to as the world. Well, I want to think biblically, and I want to go back to the origins of the world, right? We just finished the book of Genesis. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then through that first chapter, it goes on to track everything that God created on planet Earth. And then in the last verse of Genesis 1, verse 31, it says that the world was created good. In fact, the Bible says that God looked at everything that He created and that it was very good. But then something happened in Genesis 3. Sin entered the world. Romans 12 tells us sin entered the world in the garden and death by sin. And when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it changed everything for the worse. It went from being a paradise to a hostile environment. Think about that. God had created a paradise for Adam and Eve to live in. And by the way, here's, here's something that ought to be part of your worldview. God created the world to sustain human life. Period. God created the world to sustain. Everything that was created on days 1 through 5 were for what was going to be created on day 6, which was image bearers of God. And so the land, the water, the oxygen content, the food supply, the vegetation, all of it, the solar system, everything that God created was so that mankind could live in that environment. And so God created it perfect, and God created it as a paradise. But when sin entered into the world, it became a hostile environment. Think about it. Paradise is lost. They are expelled from this perfect place called the garden. God pronounces the curse upon the soil. No longer will it bear an abundance with little labor. But now you're going to labor much and yield little. You're going to work in the sweat of your brow. The ground is going to produce briars instead of fruits. Uh, animals now are going to be afraid of men and a threat to men and men a threat to animals and mankind is going to become a threat to himself as we see with the first murder in Genesis chapter 4. Something dynamically, drastically changed in the nature of the world when sin entered in. You and I are living post-sin. We are living in that post-sin world. So what am I to think of the world now? Is it this perfect environment for mankind? No, Galatians 1.4 describes it as this present evil world from which we need to be delivered by Jesus. Isn't that an interesting statement? Galatians 1.4, this present evil world. That's how God describes the world that he created. It wasn't created evil, it was created good, but sin has created conditions of evil in the world. As we think about what the Bible says about the world in which we live, we have to remember 
Ephesians chapter 6. Most all of us have read that, heard that, been taught that, the armor of God, right? And we're supposed to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and have our loins girt about uh, with the girdle of truth, to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Why does the Christian need this armor? Well, Ephesians 6.12 says, because we wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Well, wait a minute. The world is not just evil by nature, like an alligator is a predator by nature. The world is actually organized under some dark rule, the Bible is telling me. We wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And as I study the Bible and I understand, I realize that there is this evil one called the devil who has a grip on this world and that he has extended his influence into the kingdoms of this world. You know, sometimes when I, I explain this to people, I, I, I feel like they, they are a bit apprehensive to buy into it. They, they, they don't quite want to accept the fact that Satan has that much power in the world. But I would invite you to go with me to the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Jesus fasts for 40 days making himself physically weak in the flesh that he has been incarnated in. And he allows the devil to tempt him before he enters into his public ministry and begins the journey toward the cross. And in that time when Jesus would have been his weakest, humanly speaking, Satan tempts him with different things. But notice Luke chapter 4, verse 5, the final temptation or the second temptation, the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world. Would you read that last phrase back to me? All the kingdoms of the world. Not some of the kingdoms of the world, not just the kingdoms of the Middle East. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. Notice Satan claims that he has jurisdiction over the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus does not contest that. Now Jesus rebukes him for the temptation. You see, because what Satan was trying to do was he was trying to get Jesus to ascend to the throne of the world without making an atonement for the people of the world. Hey, you can avoid that cross. You can avoid the wrath of God. You can be the Lord of this world. I have the power to give you all the kingdoms of the world. And yet Jesus would not take that shortcut because it wasn't to be simply sitting on the throne of the world. It was to die for the sins of the world so that he could save those people. But what I want you to see, the insight I want you to gain, is the fact that the devil has this inordinate amount of power and influence over the world in which we live. You say, how is that possible? It, it, is it, he, he can't be stronger than God. No, think about Job. 
Remember, God allowed Satan to tempt Job. God allowed Satan to have power over the wind that destroyed the, the home of Job's children, had, had power over those thieves and those tribesmen who came and took his herds. God allowed him to execute that plan on the battlefield of humanity. And in the same sense, God has allowed Satan to have a measure of control in this world in the battle for the human soul. The devil has this power so much so, get this, that the devil is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. The Bible says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost, in whom the God, little g-o-d, of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. So I know that it's not talking about God, because God is capital G-O-D, and God doesn't blind the minds of men and women from the gospel. I know that it's talking about the devil, because he is the one who blinds the men, and he is the little G-O-D. He desires to be a God, but he cannot be God. He has a death grip on this world. And he attempts to blind the minds of the people who live in this world, or might we say blur the vision and distort the worldview. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of people on this planet who have had their worldview distorted because of the satanic influence that is in this world. And so we see the entity of the world that is not just neutral, it's not a perfect paradise of a place. It is a place described as an evil world where sin has entered in and Satan, the archenemy of God, has risen to a level of power that is unprecedented. But notice not only the entity of the world that John describes in 1 John 2, but the enticement of the world. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There are enticements that are built into this world system by Satan that are meant to draw upon or prey upon our lusts. And so John describes it, the lust of the flesh. What is the lust of the flesh? Well, when we think about the flesh, we need to think about God describing the carnal nature. It is that, 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 that idea of being fleshly or driven by our basest animal desires, the cravings of the unregenerate human nature. You see, every one of us is encased and housed in this body of flesh and when you and I get saved our body does not get saved this old body is going to go to the grave and it's going to return to the dust of the ground and my regenerated soul is going to go to heaven to be with God and when Jesus comes back he's going to give me a new body a glorified body a sinless body that matches my glorified soul and so as long as I live on planet earth I'm living in a body that is prone to craving the things of the flesh. Think about what Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. 
And so you and I have to understand that there are certain things in our human nature that craves and desires to be fed and fulfilled. And the world will dangle just what we want in front of us so that our flesh is, oh, I want that. I want to go after that. Think about all the enticements that are in the world from power, fame, success, money, whatever it may be. There are things that the human heart just latches onto and craves. That's the lust of the flesh. But he goes on to describe the lust of the eyes. That's interesting. He makes a distinction between the flesh and the eyes. We understand it's all part of the same body. But this is the visual enticement. This is the aesthetic appeal. Have you realized that, that there are some things that to your eyes, they are attractive and some things are repulsive? Well, you know, Satan is a tremendous student of sociology and he has watched the patterns of mankind from the very beginning and he knows the things that we are drawn to and attracted to and he will use those uh, to try and lure us away from the things of the Lord. Job 31.1, Job said this, I, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And so Job is talking about the lust of the eyes, that idea of being drawn away and lusting after another person. And by the way, that has not died out with the new age. That's still as real today as it ever was. In fact, there's a greater problem with pornography in our country than there ever has been. It's a multi-billion dollar business. There's a high number of people who uh, admit to being addicted to pornography, both men and women. It is something that the human eye has a problem with. But do you know that the lust of the eye is not just sexual? You see, because there are some people who have restraint, who, who, who have walked with the Lord, who have matured, who, who are able to, to guard that and say, man, I, I'm glad I don't struggle with that anymore. But listen to what Romans 7, 7 says. Paul talks about this lust and it has nothing to do with the sexual attraction he said, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Well, the lust of the eyes is not just sexual in nature. It can also be covetous. Think about the world in which we live. The advertising market of Madison Avenue is counting on the fact that your eyes like the paint color on that car, that it likes the lines on that truck, that it likes the cut of that dress, that it likes the features of that phone. And it is preying upon our eyes that it wants our heart to latch onto that and say, I want that, I got to have that. And we give way to the lust of the eyes. And so the Bible says all that's in the world, the enticements of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, this is the age-old problem of mankind. You might be sitting here feeling pretty good because you say, you know what, preacher, I've lived so long and I'm so old that, man, even if I did have the desire, I don't have the energy to do it anymore. And so that lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes it isn't nearly as strong as it was when I was a younger person. But you know what we never get tired of? Pride. It is driven down deep into the heart of every human being. What is the pride of life? It is that desire to be self-sufficient. 
to be self-made, to be proud that you aren't beholden to anybody else for what you have. You've worked with your own hands and you've put the hours in and you've bought it and you've sacrificed it and nobody else handed it to you. You're your own man. You're your own woman. And you can be your own boss. Can I tell you something? Why it may be a stirring American tone, it is thoroughly unbiblical. Because the fact is, there's not a self-made person on planet earth. So my Bible says in Psalm 100, it's he that made us and not we ourselves. My Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that, that we got the wealth because he gave us the health to get it. That you and I would not even be here if God hadn't created us. We could not live on this planet if he hadn't given us the oxygen. We couldn't go out and work one day if God hadn't given us the body and the strength to do it. We couldn't achieve one success if he didn't give us the intellect. We wouldn't have any of this that we have if he hadn't provided the opportunities for it. And So no matter how you slice it, everything that we have comes back to the origins of God. But yet in the pride of our hearts... We don't want a God to rule over us. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be able to say, I did this and nobody else. We all struggle with this prideful tendency to live independently of God. As a matter of fact, that was the original struggle of sin with Adam and Eve. Do you realize that the enticement of the world that John describes in 1 John is similar in principle to the original sin. So just think with me for a moment. All that is in the world, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 where God had forbidden that Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that Eve looked at it and she saw that it was good for food. How did she know it was good for food? She never tasted it before. Because something in her flesh said, I want that. Something in her belly growled for that. There was this base human instinct that says, I want that. The flesh was speaking. But you know what Genesis goes on to say? It was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. Whatever the shape of that fruit was, whatever the color of that fruit was, whatever the hang of that fruit was on the vine, whatever it was was appealing to the eyes of her flesh, and it wanted that fruit that had been forbidden. And then the pride of life, it was desired to make one wise. Do you know the original enticement that Satan used against Adam and Eve was that it will make you like God. God's holding out on you. He, he told you not to eat of that because in the day you eat thereof, you'll become as him, as a God. And it was the pride of her life that wanted to be like God and wanted to eat that. I'm telling you, it is the exact same principles that sin operates in today. And Satan has only honed his craft over the last 6,000 years. But consider this. There is this transaction that is going on between the world and ourselves. James describes it in James 1.14 when he says that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. 
Let's think about that verse for just a moment before we move on. Every man, so every human being, every person is strapped with this affliction. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away. Can I ask you, drawn away from what? What, 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 what are we being drawn away from? Well, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, but implicitly, it has to be God. It has to be the ways of God. What is being designed here is to draw you and I away from God and away from His ways. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Every single one of us have this desire, this craving, this lust inside of us that wants to latch on to something. And that's where Satan and his mastermind comes in. It says that we are enticed. That Satan knows exactly what it is that you and I crave. He knows the patterns of human nature. And so he has created a world structure in which all of those things are there for us to be enticed by. And when we can't restrain that lust anymore, like Eve, we reach out for the forbidden fruit. I don't know if you guys have ever read Pilgrim's Progress. It is one of the greatest books you could ever read, one of the classics. It was written by John Bunyan. And it is an allegory of the, the, the journey in the Christian life. And Pilgrim strikes out on that journey. And he is seeking the celestial city. And he incurs some obstacles along the way, like the slew of despond. He gets stuck in that mire and it nearly pulls him down, like you and I sometimes get that way. But then... That road that's leading to the celestial city is not just filled with marsh and mire, but he actually has to go through this place called Vanity Fair. It is a carnival. It is a festival of the flesh. And unlike the Slough of Despond, this has every attraction that he could ever want. And it is there tempting him and enticing him, trying to draw him off of the path so that he will indulge in that fleshly endeavor. And yet, by God's grace, Pilgrim continues on by way of the cross to the celestial city. I'm telling you, this world is our vanity fair. And it is a carnival that has every enticement that our flesh could want. The devil has engineered a world that appeals to our sinful tendencies of lust and pride. But the third factor in this forming of the worldview is the enmity of the world the enmity of the world notice the contrast or the opposition between the things of God and the things of the world in these verses look at them again verse 15 love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Every verse has this contrast between God and the world. In fact, John uses that little word, not, in a poignant way in these verses. In fact, he used that word, not, 57 times in his little letter. It is a negative adverb, and it modifies a verb or adjective by contrast to say that this is not like that. And so reading these verses, we understand that there is this opposition between God and the world. 
James fills in the blank for us in James 4.4 when he says this, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I remember reading that verse and striking on that word enmity. It wasn't a word that I was familiar with. It wasn't a word that I had heard before. And so I searched it out. I wanted to know what it meant. It means hostility. It means antagonism. It means opposition. It is the condition that makes one an enemy. Hence, James says that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If I'm going to pal up with the world, if I'm going to yoke up with the world, it is putting me in opposition to God because the world is hostile toward God. The world is not friendly toward God, but it's actually hostile toward Him. And it may suppress its hostility for appearance's sake, but if you dig below the surface, you will discover that the world opposes everything about God and subsequently opposes a God-centered worldview. I'm reminded of the fact that you and I have been insulated a little bit as Americans. Let me explain what I mean by that. We are living in the longest standing constitutional government in the world. The longest standing constitutional government in the world. That is, we are a government that began with a constitution, a document of laws that governs us. And that we're the longest standing constitutional government in the world. And we're only 244 years old, right? And so there have been other kingdoms, fiefdoms, dictatorships, uh, oligarchies, religious uh, rules that have lasted longer. But there's never been a constitutional government longer than the American experiment. Well, that constitution began with a set of amendments. And the first amendment was that freedom of religion. The government would make no laws that would, that would, uh, that would uh, be an obstacle to the worship of religion, nor would it uh, favor one religion over another. I'm thankful for that. I agree with that. I believe that it's biblical because God created the mind free and he gave us the liberty to worship uh, any way that we want and he'll hold us accountable for that. I, I, I believe in that. But think about this. In the country you and I have lived in, there's never been this true religious oppression, genocide, any of that. I mean, a Muslim can worship in freedom just as much as a Christian, as a Hindu, as a Catholic, as a Hare Krishna, as a Jehovah Witness, as a Mormon. We have enjoyed this religious liberty all of our existence. And because of the liberty that this American experiment has afforded to you and I, it has insulated us from the realities of the world that the world is truly hostile toward God. And that while superficially it may be able to put on a good appearance, if you just dig below the surface, you will find that the world actually opposes everything you believe about God. You believe that there's only one way to be saved? They oppose that. You believe that every human being is a sinner? They oppose that. You believe that there's only one God, monotheism? They oppose that. You believe that He is God in three persons, a trinity? They oppose that. You believe in God's morality code? They oppose that. You believe in God's definition of marriage? They oppose that. You believe that God created gender as binding and binary and biological? They oppose that. Just think about all that the world 
opposes. And so the challenge for us is articulated in Romans 12 too when it says be not conformed to this world. We can't let this world shape our worldview. You see, because this world is applying pressure to us on many fronts all the time. Every single day we get up out of our bed, every time we check our phone, every time we walk out our doors, every time we turn on our radio, every time we turn on our TV, every time we enter a public education or institution, there is a world that is trying to impose pressure upon you and I to adapt and adopt their worldview. And if we are unaware of that fact of our environment, we will become conformed to this world. So how do we resist the constant pressure of this world to conform us to its ideology? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the answer to that when he was on planet Earth. In John chapter 17, the night before he is to be arrested and taken, he knows that his disciples are going to be left behind. They're going to have to learn how to do life without him. He has been their insulator up to that point. He has been their strong man up to that point. He has been the one who has filtered all the information that they had received up to that point. And now all of a sudden, he's going to be removed from the scenario. And they're going to have to figure out how to do this on their own. Listen to what Jesus prays for them in John 17, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world the same world that John talks about in 1 John 2, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. I'm sure you've heard this before, but it is aptly stated. We as Christians are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are Christ followers. And we are not supposed to be going with the flow of the world. Hey, listen, we've got to get used to the tension we are never supposed to feel at home in this world, no matter who's in office. We should not feel at home in this world because the world is hostile towards God. It hated Jesus, and it will hate us if we follow Him. And so we've got to get used to that tension. We've got to accept the fact that Jesus didn't pray for us to be taken out of this world. He prayed for us to stay in this world and to be protected from the evil influences. What is the method by which we can do that? Well, Jesus stated it so clearly in John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What will keep me from being swept away with the current of the worldview? It is the truth of God's word. That's why it's so important for you and I to have a daily devotional time where we personally read God's Word. If you're just living on what you get on Sundays, it is not enough to sustain you through the week because every single day you're going to be faced with the misinformation that comes through the media of the world. And we need to be thoroughly infiltrated with the truth of God's Word so that we can resist that and we can stand against it. 
And then the last thing that John says is that the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. You see, when he's reminding us of the fact that the world is the enemy of God, he reminds us that the enemy will not stand forever. There is coming a day when God is going to put down this anarchy. There is coming a day when God's judgment is going to fall from heaven as fire and it's going to reduce this world to ashes and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 22, for us to inhabit in eternity. And so he says, look, you're living in a temporary setting. Don't live for this world. Live for eternity. Do you guys remember Chaz, not Chaz Bono, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, Washington that popped up this summer? When the protests were going on, there was a group of protesters who took control of about six blocks in downtown Seattle, Washington. They declared it to be an autonomous zone. The police precinct packed up and moved out and the local government let them have their way. I am told, I read, I saw photograph, photographic evidence of this, that, that at the borders where they had set up, that they declared, you are now leaving the United States of America and entering the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And I thought there was some irony to that. Because while they were claiming that they were autonomous from the city of Seattle, the state of Washington, and the United States of America... Their water was being supplied by the local city service. Their sewer was being supplied by the local city service. Their electricity was being supplied by the statewide grid. They were still enjoying the roads that the federal government had paved and bought and paid for. They were enjoying the infrastructure that was built up by the United States of America. And so here's this group declaring that they are completely autonomous from the United States of America, and yet they are living off of the benefits of the United States of America. They couldn't even exist without it. So I ask you, were they truly autonomous? Or were they just rebellious? And that came to an end. After so long, they ran out of, uh, out of energy, I guess, and, uh, and other things, and they shut it down. And I would say to you, that is a perfect illustration of the world that you and I are living in. You see, we're living in a world that has declared autonomy from God. We don't want God. We don't want to hear about God. We don't want God's rules. We don't want God's government. We don't want God ruling over us. We're, we're independent of God. And yet, they are living in the world that God created, breathing the air that God made, drinking the water that God engineered, enjoying all the fruits of God's labor. And I'm telling you, it is not autonomous. It is rebellious, and it is temporary. And one day God is going to reduce it to ashes and so John says why would you live your life for a pile of ashes when instead you could live it for the eternal God and enjoy the benefits for all eternity would you bow with me so we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment we think about our view of the world. Our goal is not to have the Democrats' view 
of the world. It's not to have the Republicans' view of the world. It's not to have the Libertarians' view of the world. It's not to have the Socialists' view of the world. It's to have the biblical view of the world. And God has made it quite clear in His Word that the world, no matter how fond of it we may be, is hostile towards Him. And we have to live accordingly. We love the world in the sense that God loves the world, that we want to seek the regeneration of every soul on this planet, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But we don't want to love the world in the sense that 1 John 2 says, where we're loving the things that oppose our God. Oh, Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to establish our view of the world, that we would understand the environment in which we live, that we would not be swept away with the current of the culture, no matter how powerful and influential it is. Lord, I sense that there is a revolution coming, not just in our country, but in our world and our ideologies. And I'm so concerned that Christians will get swept up in it if they don't determine what their view of the world is by your word. So, Father, I pray and ask today that you would help us, help us to adopt your worldview. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.